Glad to have you here. Welcome to uh, Watermark. We're not really wanting to welcome you to Watermark so much tonight as we are to Socrates in the city. The first time it's been outside. Yeah, applaud for that. If you uh, aren't familiar yet with what Socrates in the city is and why you should applaud for it, we hope that tonight becomes uh, a means that you would want to do that in the future. In fact, one of the things that we're dreaming about is that the brand Socrates in the city would become something that when you hear Eric and other friends are coming back like the Nesh, that you would want to uh, broker your influence to have other friends join you in venues where we might do all the wise and the che- wine and the cheese and all the appropriate hors d'oeuvres that go around. Just a great evening that engages your heart, your palate, and your mind in a way that will allow you to laugh and learn and think. You guys all know, and Eric will say this, that Socrates is the one that is uh, famous for saying that the unexamined life is not worth living. And we're going to have a great chance tonight uh, to hear from a, a very gifted communicator about a topic that talks about life, probably on both sides of the grave, and, and what basis we have for having hope in that. I'm going to let Eric introduce more of him. In just a moment, though, I want to invite my friend uh, Eric Metaxas up here. Eric is the author of uh, several books, um, most famously in my family with children, of uh, different veggie tales uh, that were produced. And, and so Eric has written and, and helped out with some of those. Uh, also wrote for a while with Chuck Colson, and then went on to author some books of his own, including Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce, and The Courageous Fight Against Slavery. And most recently, Eric's book was just uh, named The Book of the Year, Bonhoeffer, Spy, Prophet, and Martyr. And if you have not read it, I, uh, it is worth every penny uh, that it costs to get it. It is a tremendous book. We always do this when we have guests in that have um, material that you'll want. Dines has written a number of good books that we have out there as well. We're going to tell you more about those. I'm behaving, not introducing him and pumping his stuff because I'll let Eric do that. But that stuff is available out there as well. We bring it in tonight for you because you're going to want to get it, and so we may as well have it here. And so that's why that's available for you tonight. And then uh, I'll tell you more about Eric and Dinesh being willing to sign that interface with you afterwards. Eric is a winsome intellect. You don't often meet uh, individuals that uh, have graduated from Yale and still you can have a normal, fun conversation with. Eric is one such creature. Eric is the most successful guy I know that moved back in with his parents at 24. And he has gone on to uh, bless us all with a lot of writings, a lot of learnings. He has been uh, praised by Ann B. Davis. Anyone? Ann Davis? Alice from the Brady Bunch on his website. Listen to who endorses him, all right? Alice. I mean, what else do you want? Woody Allen and Moby. Now, if that is not an eclectic group of people that will endorse who you are, I don't know what else to say. So here's the man that Alice, Woody, and Moby all love, Eric Metaxas. Come on up here, Eric. Wow. I, I must be in Dallas. This is very impressive. But you're not Mavericks fans, is that right? Did I get you? Um, wow. This is, I come to Dallas to get encouraged because we don't have crowds like this in New York City. Do we, Dinesh? No, this is tremendous. Gosh, there's so much I want to I I share with you tonight. Um, I'm glad that you have heard of my book, Bonhoeffer. My landlord appreciates that. Um, now, I am so amazed at uh, how this book has been uh, being read by people. I'm not used to that. I'm one of these guys who I'm not used to success. 
And that's probably a good thing, right? Because you really appreciate it. And this book, uh, I'm, I'm just stunned at how many people are, are, are reading it. I'm not here to talk to you about Bonhoeffer tonight, but I almost was because the airlines got so messed up that we were pretty sure Dinesh was not going to be able to be here tonight. And I was getting really, really nervous. Uh, and I was thinking, well, I guess if Dinesh can't get there, I can talk about Bonhoeffer. I guess I got that in my back pocket if we have to go there. But uh, I'm really glad that we don't because you, you're in for a, a, a treat tonight. I want to tell you a little bit about Socrates in the city so you know what that is. Um, because uh, it's something that we started in New York City about 10 years ago. And how did it start? I mean, some friend of mine asked me if I wanted to start a Seekers Bible study in New York City, right? And I said, yeah, whatever, great. And I got to talking, and I have to say that um, I was hanging out with Oz Guinness. Some of you guys know Oz Guinness? You know Oz? Uh, he, he said, well, we could do this, we could do that, maybe I could come and speak. And I said, yeah, now you're talking. Okay, you come and speak, and then we'll have Q&A. And because I wanted to do something that was different. I wanted to do something that really wasn't your typical... I wanted something that could take Socrates' maxim seriously. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And then he blew his brains out in an alley. Did you know that? That's a dark joke for Dallas. In New York, they laugh at that. Yeah, there were no, there were no guns in classical Greece. That would be an anachronism. From the Greek word chronos. No, never mind. Uh, so anyway, uh, so Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And I remember thinking, you know, as a person of faith, I agree with that statement. I agree with that statement. And uh, I think it's important for us to examine our lives, to examine the big questions of life truthfully, earnestly, uh, to think deeply about the big questions of life. But I realized in a place like Manhattan, where I live with my wife and daughter, that's not what people do. People avoid the big questions. The big questions make them nervous. So they talk about everything except the big questions about the meaning of life. Is there a God? How can, if there is a God, how can there be all the suffering in the world? Uh, all these big questions. Is science compatible with, uh, with faith? The big questions that we ought to explore honestly, whether you are a believer of some kind or not a believer, we should all be able to have a dialogue about these questions and to think more deeply about these things. But uh, in New York City, there really was no place you could go um, to do that. Uh, and, and frankly, over the years, I had read amazing books by brilliant writers and speakers. And I thought, how come those people don't come to New York? And, you know, maybe we can invite those people to New York. So we decided to do this. We did them in venues uh, that are even nicer than this sanctuary. I'm sorry, Todd. OK, he's my new friend. That's how <clears throat> I greet my friends. I insult them in their own place. Um, no, but in all seriousness, we do these things deliberately, not in churches. We do them in private clubs in Manhattan that, you know, you can't get into even if you if you want to. And and basically we have wine and hors d'oeuvres. We we draw the line at weed. N no one. Yeah, I, I hope there's nobody smoking weed here because that's just I, I just draw the line there. But um, but in all seriousness, it's very elegant. And so you can invite anybody you want, any friend of yours, to come to this thing. And it's just really elegant and beautiful, wonderful. And I get up there and I introduce the speaker, usually with a host of really stupid jokes. Tonight, I'm going to give you a break here. But, but it's just kind of stupid and fun. And then we hear this amazing speaker and then we have Q&A. And the whole point is to invite people into a deeper conversation with the big questions. And so we've had just ridiculous speakers. We had Sir John Polkinghorne, one of the great physicists of the 20th century, who also uh, is a 
an Anglican priest talk about the compatibility of science uh, and faith. We've had all kinds of tremendous uh, speakers. Chuck Colson, who was just here uh, a few months ago, tremendous, tremendous speakers. And it's just been miraculous, actually. It's been, a, it's been, we've been doing this for 10 years. We're finally coming out with a book this fall called Socrates in the City, Conversations on Life, God, and Other Small Topics. You, you've heard of it. Oh, you've heard of it. Good. Um, so so we're, we're doing that, and, uh, and that's it. That's it. We've been doing it for 10 years. And so everywhere I go around the country, I'm doing a lot of speaking, mostly about Bonhoeffer. People say, you know, how come you don't do Socrates in the City, you know, where we are, whatever. And so we did it once uh, or twice now in Chicago, and it was amazing. And I've got a lot of friends in the Dallas area. Unfortunately, most of them are in the room right now. Uh, some of you guys owe me money, okay? I'm saying it publicly. What do I need to do? Come on, enough, enough is enough. Um, but a number, of, a number of my friends are here, and some former friends as well, I can say that too. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's right, you know who you are. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we shouldn't joke around, it's a church. I'm sorry, Todd, I'm sorry. Uh, so, so uh, but a lot of these friends have said, why don't you do Socrates in Dallas and Fort Worth, and finally, uh, somebody over at the Fort Worth Club uh, who'd had me speak over there said, why don't you do it here? And so we booked it for May 26th, and then I thought, hey, you know what? We're going to be in Dallas. Why don't we try to do an event in Dallas? And because of the wonderful uh, Todd Wagner, here we are tonight. So I'm really excited. This is the first Socrates in the city ever in the great state of Texas. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, if you're going to do Socrates in the city, outside of New York City, who would you get as your first speaker? Who would you get? Now, now I'm on the record, this is like in the Socrates in the city bylaws, it has to be Oz Guinness. You understand that, right? It does. Because Socrates, Oz Guinness was our first seven speakers. He, he, he just, like, he, he built, we built the brand on his back, okay? Uh, and so Oz Guinness, for me, is the brand um, of Socrates in the city. So if I ever do Socrates in the city outside of New York, always uh, I would, uh, you know, I would, I would use Oz Guinness. But Oz Guinness is like in India or, or China or something like that. And I thought, look, Oz, you're, you're, great, you're great, but you're not that great, okay? I'm your friend. I can tell you. Please, there are other people who can do this. Um, and so... Um, I went to all those people, and none of them were available. So we got Dinesh. What, what am I going to do? What are you going to do? Dinesh was available. No, uh, I think that's a joke. Dinesh, uh, Dinesh really, I really did have to think hard about this, because I said, you know, the brand of Socrates in the city, we, we do talk sometimes that are a little, a little different, but I wanted to do something that's kind of like right in our sweet spot, you know? And uh, Dinesh uh, spoke uh, for Socrates in the city about a year and a half ago. We had a big Christmas gala. Uh, and he spoke for us on this subject, life after death, the evidence. And it really was just tremendous. And I wondered if it might be possible to get Dinesh tonight. And, I, and I'm still wondering, is he here? Yeah, he's here. Good. Uh, so amazingly, we got uh, Dinesh D'Souza. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Dinesh. If you don't already know uh, who he is. If you, if you don't know who he is, you might be watching too much TV. I'm just saying. I'm not going to tell you how to live. But uh, if you read books, I think you know who this guy is. Uh, he was born in, it says, either Mumbai or Bombay. You, you can't have it both ways, Dinesh. Which is it? Come on, make up your mind. You know, everybody wants to have the cake and eat it, too. Uh, we're going to go with Mumbai. Is that okay? Mumbai? All right, whatever. Um, he was born in Mumbai, which I believe is on the subcontinent, India. Uh, 
uh, and he was an exchange student, I love this, in Arizona. He decided that the, the Rotary Club sponsored him. I'm not making this up. I know this is true. To be an exchange student in high school in Arizona. Uh, and the short version is he loved America so much, uh, he wanted to stay longer, and he did. Uh, he ended up going to Dartmouth uh, College, which is almost as godless as Yale University, but not quite, but not quite. Uh, and um, flourished uh, amazingly, uh, ended up working in the Reagan White House, where he met uh, his wife, uh, Dixie. Um, he was with the American Enterprise Institute, with the Hoover uh, Institution. Uh, he's written a number of amazing books. Uh, the author, Paul Johnson, said, listen to this quote. If, if anybody gives you a quote like this, you can die, because you're done. You don't need anything after this. This is it. Uh, Anne B. Davis is close, but this might be better. Paul Johnson said, Dinesh D'Souza is one of the most original, insightful, and penetrating minds in America today. That, my friends, is extraordinary. If, if it actually is Paul Johnson, the Paul Johnson that said this, this is not a Paul Johnson, this is the Paul Johnson, right? Because I know Paul Johnson who, who owns two, um, two gas stations. It's not, that's not him. Because if he said that, that's impressive, but it's not as impressive if the author of Intellectuals said it. But Paul Johnson said that about Dinesh, which just... You can just stop uh, right there, but of course I won't. Um, Dinesh is the author of, uh, in 1991 already, he wrote a book called Illiberal Education. Huge, huge book. Uh, It examined for the first time seriously the phenomenon of political correctness. Perhaps you've heard of political correctness. Good. I must be in Texas. Awesome. and uh, that was just, uh, that set things up. He then r- wrote another, these, these books have almost all been groundbreaking and controversial in the best way. He wrote a book called The End of Racism in 1995. In 2002, uh, he wrote What's So Great About America. Uh, the original title was What's So Great About America, Punk, but they, they thought that was a little too combative, so they, they, they just pulled it back to What's So Great About America. Um, uh, in 2007, he wrote What's So Great about Christianity. Uh, in 2009, he wrote the book that we're going to be hearing about tonight. And again, there are copies uh, available outside. It's called Life After Death. Tremendous. You'll hear about it in just a moment. Uh, and in 2010, uh, Dinesh D'Souza jumped the shark and he wrote a book called The Roots of Obama's Rage. I don't know what he was thinking. It's insane. It's crazy stuff. I'm not going to get into it. Um, so... Uh, so he's written a few books. Those are just a few of the books that he has written. Uh, I think all of them have been New York Times bestseller. The most recent one was number one on the New York Times list. And as an author, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. I'm just saying that to you privately. Um, the thing about being number one, though, is like, you know, w- whenever I've had a book that's, that's done well on Amazon, you're yearning for it to do better. You know, if it's like, you know, number 290, you're thinking, oh, if I could break 200 or if it's, you know, 200, if only I could get to 140, what would that feel like? But if your book is number one, that's it. Uh, you know, what are you yearning for? 0.6? You can't, there is no 0.6. You're done. You're one. So when you're at the top, the only place you can go, Dinesh, is downhill from there. That's it. That's it. You're at the top of the ride. You're coming down, pal. So, uh, I, I have to say that, you know. So, um, but anyway, uh, so his books have done tremendously well. His writing has appeared uh, just about everywhere. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Atlantic Monthly, Vanity Fair, New Republic, National Review, and High Times. Interesting. That's interesting. 
Interesting. I didn't know. You smoke the wacky weed, brother, do you? That's interesting. Um, don't, don't talk about that in your talk. Um, yeah, that was a joke. Uh, he's been on the Today Show. He's been on Nightline, The O'Reilly Factor, Glenn Beck. And for two seasons, starred in H.R. Puffin Stuff. Some of you are familiar with that. He was on that show for two seasons. Um, but all of this, my friends, pales... Yeah, that, that might not be true. It might have just been one season. Uh, all of this... All of this pales with what he is doing right now. And I have to tell you, I am very, very, very excited about what he's doing right now. He is right now the president of King's College in New York City. Uh, I live, some of you know about King's College. If you don't know about King's College, uh, I abjure you. That's a verb. Uh, I abjure you to, uh, to go and, and look it up and find out about the King's College. There is nothing like it. King's College is an extraordinary uh, Christian college in the heart of Manhattan. I live in Manhattan. Manhattan is an intensely, aggressively secular place, genuinely to a fault, uh, to the point where it, it seems to exclude uh, biblical ideas, which is why we do Socrates in the city once in a while to throw some, uh, some new ideas out there, because you cannot have health if you don't have an honest, robust debate. Well, the King's College uh, is right in the middle of New York City. Uh, the students are excellent. The teachers are excellent. When I found out that King's College was coming to be in New York City, I was so impressed. And I said, if there's anything I can do uh, to help you, you let me know. And I've been involved with King's over the years. Uh, I was utterly thrilled when I found out that they were bringing on uh, Dinesh, uh, to be their president. It takes real vision uh, to do something like that. Uh, but I am, I'm just thrilled about King's College. Maybe Dinesh will, will talk a little bit about the King's uh, College. But I want everybody uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area to know about uh, the King's College and what is happening back in New York City, uh, where I'm from and where Dinesh now is. And I want everybody in the Dallas-Fort Worth area to know uh, about Socrates in the City. And I want you to know about Dinesh D'Souza. Fortunately, I'm now going to shut up and Dinesh is going to come up here. How about a warm Dallas Socrates in the city welcome for my friend Dinesh D'Souza. Come on up, Dinesh. Thank you. Eric, thank you very much, I think. Um, I'm um, really thrilled and honored to be here. Um, this is a very unusual podium. I'm really relieved I remember to wear pants. Uh, well, Eric, um, Eric mentioned... Um, not just my book um, on the roots of Obama, but also my roots, which are in, in India. I, um, I grew up in Bombay, Mumbai, um, and I came to America as an exchange student sponsored by the Rotary Club. Uh, this was in the 12th grade of high school. Uh, and I lived in Arizona with a host family. Uh, and about a month after I got here, my um, host parents said to me, Dinesh, there is a um, homecoming dance at your high school. Uh, have you asked someone to go? And I said to them, uh, well, I haven't been in the country that long. I, I don't know anyone all that well. 
I think I'm going to have to pass. But they said, absolutely not. Homecoming is a great American tradition. This is absolutely mandatory. <laughs> so I said, fine. Uh, I approached a young woman in my, in my class, uh, a blonde as I recall, and, and I said, would, would, would you like to go to the homecoming dance? And she said, uh, sure, but I have to ask my parents. I will tell you tomorrow. So the next day I went up to her and I said, well, uh, what did they say? And she said, um, who? And I said, well, your, your parents. And she said, um, about what? And then as I took in this extremely embarrassing situation, I, I suddenly realized with an incredible shock and, and horror that I had approached the wrong girl. And um, as I reflected upon this uh, later, I actually realized in retrospect I was guilty of a very common third world fallacy, which is simply the idea that all white women look alike. <laughs> now, I must say, I'm really thrilled I'm really thrilled to be here on behalf of Socrates and the city because the, the spirit of the organization, which is essentially to look with a skeptical, skeptical in the right sense of the term, a skeptical eye at the big questions of our time. Uh, this, I think, is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and I've tried to uh, embody that spirit in, in, in some of my own work. So I want to talk... Um, this evening, I want to, I'll say some things about life after death, but I also want to look at uh, some larger questions that um, engage Socrates in the city. You know, we're living today in uh, secular culture. That's something new in America. It's, in fact, it's something new in the world. Why? Because America in the past was a country uh, shaped by... Christian, some say Judeo-Christian, ideas. Uh, but today, that Judeo-Christian uh, consensus uh, no longer holds across the whole society. So we are living in secular society. Not only that, but in the last few years, we've seen something quite remarkable, which is the emergence in America of what some people have called the new atheism. Now, what's new about the new atheism? Well, there are a couple things that are very new about it. First of all, there's always there's been atheism in America for some time. You know, when I came to America in the 1970s, there was a, an activist, I, I think from Texas, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, who was, who was running, run, running around uh, promoting atheism. Uh, uh, but, then, and, but if you thought of atheism a generation ago, you'd think Madeleine Murray O'Hare... Or you'd think maybe some kind of a rumpled ACLU lawyer. My, my point was this was not an atheism with mass appeal. But the new atheists of today are, they're a, a more refined breed. They're academically more distinguished. They're, they're culturally more cool. I, I think of people like the, um, uh, the Cambridge uh, physicist uh, Stephen Hawking, who was sitting in Isaac Newton's chair um, at Cambridge University. Uh, I think of people like uh, the Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins. Uh, I think of the Harvard uh, cognitive psychologist, uh, a guy named Steven Pinker. 
or at Princeton, uh, Peter Singer, the bio, the controversial bioethicist, uh, Christopher Hitchens, author of the book God is Not Great, uh, whom you can read regularly in Vanity Fair or see periodically on the Bill Maher show. So a guy like Hitchens, I mean, is a, is a very different character than Ma- Madeleine Murray O'Hare because Hitchens is, he's got the Richard Burton British accent. If you see him on TV, he's got his hair kind of artfully messed up. And he's kind of wearing a trench coat to kind of give him the, you know, the child molester look. Um, but in kind of an appealing way. Um, so, you know, these are, these are the new atheists. So not only do we have secularism, we have, we have an intellectual movement that's dedicated to advancing secularism and attacking Christianity, undermining belief in God. So that's an interesting phenomenon. The new atheists could be described as evangelical atheists. Why? Because they're not just content not to believe. They want to convert people to their point of view. And their focus is on young people. Uh, One of the new atheists says, I'm going to let the Christians breed them. You have the kids. But hey, at some point, you're going to have to send them out into the world. That's when we're going to get them. Because we, the atheists, are influentially ensconced in the media, in academia, in education. So we're going to use the techniques of knowledge. We're going to use the Socratic method to dismantle belief, expose it, destroy it. Now, you know, what is this new atheism, what does it sound like? Well, the new atheists are really good at going up, corralling the young Christian and saying, hey, hey, Christian, you're supposed to be a Christian, but, you know, let me ask you this. Have you conducted an independent investigation of all the great religions and belief systems in the world? No. You're actually a Christian, well, because your parents are Christian, You're a Christian because you were born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Dallas, Texas. Your Christianity is the accident of birth. Hey, had you been born in Afghanistan, you know, you'd be a Muslim. If you'd been born in Tibet, today you'd be a Buddhist. So how do you know that your beliefs are true uh, and everybody else's are not? You can say, well, I got a holy book, but hey, everyone's got a holy book. How do you know that your holy book trumps their holy book. How do you know that, you know, when the world ends, hey, it was supposed to end a couple days ago. I still haven't unpacked. Anyway, um, anyway, how do you know that when the world ends and the great curtain comes down and the final phone call comes in, how do you know it's not going to come from, say, Salt Lake City? Big surprise. Anyway. I was, reading, I was reading an article the other day by one of the uh, leading uh, new atheists. He was talking about this, this war on terror, war against terrorism. He said, look, it's a war of competing religious fundamentalisms. Over there, Islamic fundamentalism. Over here, Christian fundamentalism. And what do these groups have in common? Well... They're fueling their fanaticism at the same holy gas station. In other words, religion, belief in God, that's the problem. That's the kind of thing that makes people read a holy book, talk to God, go nuts, fly planes into buildings. 
And the atheist says it's not just that. It's not just Islamic terrorism. Look around the world. Why are people fighting? Why is there discord and division and violence and war? It's basically because of God. He's to blame. Why are the Shia fighting the Sunni in Iraq? They're fighting over God. Why are the Hindus and the Muslims fighting in Kashmir? They're fighting over God. And what about the Israelis and the Palestinians? Well, they're fighting over God. And what about in Northern Ireland? The same. And if you look at history, the writer continues, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the religious wars, the Salem witch trials. He goes, come on. Any reasonable person is bound to conclude that belief in God is a real menace to civilization. And if you could get rid of God, if you could have a, a truly secular society, it would not only be more rational, more scientific, but it would be more decent, more peaceful, a more moral society. So this is the voice of the new atheism. One of the things I thought I'd do this evening is I would... I want to engage the new atheism with its own weapons. And what I mean by that is I want to apply a skeptical lens to skepticism itself. And so you'll notice in my talk, at no point will I appeal to the Bible or scripture or holy book. Uh, I'm essentially going to speak purely the language of reason. But I'm going to do it to engage some of the strongest arguments, a couple of the strongest arguments of the new atheism. Now... The interesting thing about the new atheists, and by the way, I've, I've, gotten, to, I've gotten a fairly good exposure to these characters because in the last three or four years, I've been debating a number of the leading uh, new atheists on campuses around the country. Uh, I've done about 25 of these debates. They're mostly on the secular campus. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, who's been called by some America's leading atheists, he and I have debated about 10 times. Uh, I don't know if we'll debate again, to be sure, because our last debate... Well, Hitchens has cancer, and a very bad form of cancer, of the throat. So he apparently is losing his voice. But the amazing thing is he's not losing his, his vitriol. He's just as belligerent against Christianity. Uh, and so it's kind of hard to debate him now because he, the guy looks so weak. I mean, he's a little bit like a sick dog. Except the whole debate, he's biting your ankles. So you kind of have the irresistible urge, perhaps not a very Christian urge, to kick him. But this is not easy to do since he's sick. So this is the, the surreal feeling of being in these debates. Uh, incidentally, a couple of years ago, I debated a philosopher named Daniel Dennett, teaches at Tufts University, and we were debating on his campus. And the interesting thing about Dennett is he's a big roly-poly guy. He looks exactly like Santa Claus. He's got a big white beard. And so as I come on the stage, I look across and, you know, gee, there's Santa. Uh, so, and then as I turn into the audience, what was even more creepy is that strewn through the audience were about a dozen little Santas. These were student disciples of the great Santa on the podium. So, anyway, what I'm getting at is, in a debate, you try to find the weakness, the fallacy uh, of the other side. But this evening, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to focus on the weak points of the new atheism. I'm actually going to focus on a couple of its strong points uh, and try to address them there. Why? Because if you can actually uh, engage the new atheism at its best, uh, then you really have a sturdy foundation for, for what you believe. 
So I want to start uh, by saying a few things about life after that. Uh, I don't want to, I'm not going to speak exclusively about that, but that's clearly one of the great issues, the great dividing lines, you may say, between belief and unbelief. Incidentally, all the religions of the world are united that this life is not the only life. The atheists, on the other hand, flatly deny life after death. And what's interesting about this question is, it is completely a factual question. It's not a question of opinion or a question of what works for me. It's ultimately a question of either there is or there isn't. But the really interesting thing about this question is it's very difficult for either side to know for sure, at least on the basis of reason alone. I was uh, in a debate uh, some months ago with a guy named Michael uh, Shermer. He's the editor of a magazine called Skeptic Magazine. Uh, and he's a prominent uh, atheist. And so in order to um, uh, attack me, he says to me, well, Dinesh, he says, uh, you Christians, he says, are basically, you have half a brain. Uh, good way to start, you know, you have half a brain. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, in everyday life, you're, you're kind of rational, you're kind of sensible. But when it comes to your religious beliefs, he goes, you just throw your, your knowledge and your brain out of the window. He says, let me, let me prove it to you. Let me ask you a question. Is there life after death? And I said, yes. And he said, well, there you go. That's an example of pure ignorance. He said, because Shakespeare tells us that death is the undiscovered country. From its born, no traveler has ever returned. In other words, death is a door through which none of us have been. We can't interview dead people. We can't go to the other side. So he goes, clearly, you have no idea what comes after death. You are asserting something to be a fact that you have no way of knowing is a fact. And therefore, you are essentially, resor you are essentially, essentially resorting to blind faith. There's no reason behind what you're saying at all. So I said to him, uh, Michael, I said, you know, you seem to have scored a pretty good point, but let me, let me turn the camera around and ask you a question. Is there life after death? And he said, well, I'm a skeptic. No. And I said, oh, um, have you been to the other side of the curtain? Have you interviewed any dead guys? No. So what information do you have that I don't have? None. In other words, your denial of life after death, like my affirmation of it, is based on faith. Neither of us know. We're both jumping in the dark. The difference between you and me isn't that you know and I don't. It is ultimately that I, the believer, will at least admit that my belief is faith-based. You, the sorry atheist, have deluded yourself into thinking that your position is somehow based on evidence when you have no evidence. You are also taking a faith-based position the same as me. Now, notice here I'm not, this is not an attempt to prove life after death. But it is an attempt to level the playing field between the believer and the non-believer. It's an attempt right away to say that based on reason alone, nobody has an inbuilt advantage. You have to look skeptically or open-mindedly to see where the facts actually point. Now, what's really interesting to me is that 
For centuries, Christians and Jews have believed things about life after death that if you said them a hundred years ago or three hundred years ago, they would sound totally preposterous. Eternity. God is outside of space and outside of time. Well, if you think about it, how is that even possible? Time stretches infinitely in both directions. Space spreads out everywhere. How can you get outside of space? What does that even mean? In the Newtonian universe, that made absolutely no sense. Christians believe that when you die, not only does your soul survive, but you also survive with a body, a resurrected body. Now, it's a different body than the one we have now, but it's a material body in some sense. It's a real body. And that means that there must be matter of some sort different than any matter that we know. But the truth of it is we live in the world. We know what matter is. Matter breaks down. It's made up of atoms and molecules. So again, in the past, if you talked about material bodies that are imperishable, that last forever, this made absolutely no scientific sense. It was just a kind of ridiculous statement. You could hold it on faith alone, but you could never really defend it. So what I'm, as I'm trying to say is that Christian beliefs in, in, in the past ran against, you may say, the thrust of, of science. Science said one thing, and in a way Christians believed another. And that's, by the way, a key argument of the new atheists, isn't it? Their argument is that, is that science is advancing and Christianity is retreating. Why? Because in the atheist view, ancient man was kind of ignorant and would attribute to God things that could not be explained in the natural world. So here's a man sticking his head out of a cave. He sees a bolt of lightning. He has no idea where that came from. Gee, that must be the lightning God. So the, the atheist idea is that, but then science comes along and explains all this stuff, and the Christians have got to go find other stuff for God to do. Science is advancing. Christianity is backing up. Now, what's interesting about this narrative, I think, is that it relies on some key historical examples. The Christians used to believe the earth is flat. Then the brilliant scientists showed up and proved it's round. The Christians thought that the earth is the center of the universe, that the sun goes around the earth. But no, Copernicus and then Galileo showed it was really the other way around. The sun is at the center of the solar system. The earth goes around the sun. Christians believe that God made every creature each unto its kind, but the scientists showed that now uh, chance and natural selection, as Darwin showed, can account for the diversity of life on the planet. You, you don't need to invoke the Creator. So this is the great atheist narrative. How does it fare as a narrative? Well, interestingly, it rests completely on a tripod of three historical examples. When you begin to look more closely at those examples, each one of them implodes. They all break down. I'll, I'll give you one example of what I mean. The flat earth. In college, I read Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, a book that's... Uh, uh, Eric, we routinely read at Dartmouth. I'm not sure about Yale. Uh, but anyway, um, Dante's Divine Comedy presumes a spherical, a round earth. So the medieval Christians in the Middle Ages 
they knew that the earth was round. And then if you look at the um, educated people at the time of Christ, turns out they knew that the earth was round. And then I discovered that the ancient Greeks, who lived 500 years before Christ, knew full well that the earth is round. How? Turns out you don't need Galileo's telescopes to figure it out. All you need to do is walk outside and view an eclipse. Here's the sun. Here's the earth. Here's the moon. You can see the shadow of the earth on the moon. Hey, fellas, it's round. So, Aristotle knew that the earth is round. What, what am I saying here? I'm saying this whole business about the flat earth, completely bogus, a total myth made up by atheists in the 19th century to discredit Christianity, subsequently revealed to be a complete intellectual fraud, but still disseminated as if true in the textbooks and the young people. So, my point is, this atheist narrative, when you look at it, doesn't really hold up. And here's the point I'm driving at. You notice that the atheist narrative really stops at Darwin. Stops in 1859. Why is that? I mean, has science kind of made no new discoveries in the last 150 years? Not at all. The most uh, stupendous scientific advances have occurred in the last 100 years starting with relativity, quantum physics, the, uh, the Big Bang and the origin of the universe, the nature of matter, all that stuff has emerged in the last 110 years. And yet the atheists never mention any of it. Why not? Well, because by and large, that scientific, the most recent, the most important scientific knowledge, cuts the other way. Far from undermining Christianity, far from undermining belief in God or creator or life after death, it actually opens up amazing possibilities that weren't there before. So let's come back for a moment to life after death and say, what do we mean by that? Well, let's start with a very simple question that was posed many hundreds of years ago to the church father Augustine. This is Augustine who wrote, you know, Augustine's Confessions. And the question was, if you think of time, time goes back, but no matter how far back you go, you can always go further back. If somebody says, you know, 10,000 years ago, you can say, well, before that, 10,001 years ago. One million years ago. Before that, one million and one years ago. So time appears to have no stopping point, either forward or backward. And the question to Augustine was, when did God create the universe? And what was he doing before that? Kind of an interesting question. How did God occupy his time? which he evidently had a lot of, prior to creating the universe. And Augustine, based on a meditation on the book of Genesis, answered this question in an astounding way. He said, God created time along with the universe. In other words, before the universe, you've got to put the word before here in quote marks, there was no time. Once upon a time, time did not exist. It's a very mind-bending idea. And yet, for centuries, this idea of being, as I say, outside of time made no sense. But today, all you have to do is enroll your son or daughter at the local university in an introductory course in physics, and they will learn that as a direct consequence of the 
Big Bang, not only did the universe have a beginning, not only did all the matter have a beginning, but space and time also had a beginning. This is the amazing fact. Space and time are now understood to be properties of our universe, which means that beyond our universe, if there is a beyond, no space, no time. So suddenly the Christian idea of eternity, i.e. God outside or beyond space and time, which for many centuries was very difficult to explain or account for, is now completely scientifically plausible. The laws of physics, it turns out, are a kind of a grammar. What does grammar do? It describes the relationship of language. Can you have grammar without language? No. Similarly, the laws of physics are a kind of grammar for our universe, and they are local to it. Suddenly, the Christian idea of eternity, I guess I'm saying, is less mystifying than it used to be. Consider something as remarkable as the notion of, I mentioned earlier, resurrected bodies that last forever. This, for Christianity to be true, such bodies must be possible. Material bodies, but nevertheless imperishable. Bertrand Russell, writing uh, several decades ago in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, goes, this is ridiculous. He goes, we know what matter is. We know what matter does. We know how matter behaves. Matter can't do that. However, since then, there have been remarkable advances in science that have shown us that matter is actually not that way at all. Some years ago, scientists were looking at galaxies, and it occurred to someone to calculate the amount of matter in the galaxies, and they realized there's just not enough gravity for the galaxies to hold together. There's not enough matter to generate the gravity for the galaxies to hang together. They should be flying apart. And scientists realize that there has to be some other kind of matter. They call it dark matter. That is invisible to every scientific instrument. Has qualities completely different from any matter we know. But it has to be there. Because that's the only way the galaxies can hold together. Have enough gravitational force to be galaxies. That's dark matter. Scientists have also discovered something else equally fascinating and bizarre. It's called dark energy. What's dark energy? Well, the universe is expanding. That's been known for a hundred years. But what's been discovered more recently is the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. This is very strange. Why? It's like I pick up a stone and I throw it. It's going to go. But after a while, it's going to slow down. But what if the stone goes faster and faster? Well, some force must be pushing it. And if the universe is expanding, well, by the way, that's the residual effect of the Big Bang itself. But if the expansion is accelerating, there has to be some force pushing space itself further apart. Dark energy. Now, here's an interesting question. If you take the dark matter and the dark energy in the universe and you add them up, what percentage of total matter and energy does it make up? And here's the answer. A modest... 95%, which is to say that all the matter that we know about and can measure and can study is only 5% of the total matter out there. 
So now we revisit Bertrand Russell's argument that, gee, it's not possible to have matter that lasts forever because we know what matter is. And the answer is, sorry, pal, but the sample size that you're looking at is less than 5%. You can't make any generalizations about matter based upon such a tiny subset of all the matter there is. So notice where I'm going with all this, by the way. I'm not offering proofs. I'm simply saying that, look, suddenly... All these concepts of Christianity, I'm asking for life after death to be true, certain things have to be possible. If they're not possible, Christianity is impossible. And I'm saying that modern science has opened up amazing horizons of possibility that weren't there before. Heaven, a place that is beyond the universe, which lasts forever, that has different laws than any laws that we know in the universe. Again, in the past, what does that mean? People couldn't make sense of it. Soviet astronauts and cosmonauts would go up uh, into the sky and, and one of them reported, gee, I can report this. I, you know, I, I've, I've been above the Earth's atmosphere. There's no heaven up here. I can verify there's no heaven. This was the level of the debate. But it was, it was, it was at that level because no one could conceive of what it meant to have alternative realms that have different kinds of laws. Well, today, Stephen Hawking, the atheist, has a new book out, The Grand Design. Whole chapters about, uh, in that book are about multiple universes, possibly an infinity of universes. Each universe, by the way, operating according to its own laws. So if E equals MC squared over here, here e, e, e may equal MC cubed over there. We will never know about those universes because they're eternally cut off from us. But, according to Hawking, they are there, they exist. So suddenly, if you have an infinity of universes, each of them operating by their own laws, the Christian postulate of heaven, hell, as alternative realms where there are different laws, is completely within the mainstream of modern physics. It's nothing outrageous or preposterous, there's nothing impossible about it at all. Now, I've been speaking a little bit about science, I could go on about this, I... I want to um, cover some other ground, and so I need to adopt the motto that King Henry VIII used with one of his wives. He said, I can't keep you too long. So, I need to fast forward uh, a little bit. And, um, and what I want to do now is, uh, very briefly, I want to take on an argument I mentioned earlier, the atheist argument, a very popular one, that religion and Christianity as part of that, are responsible for the great divisions and warfare and crimes and terrorism now and in the past. And I want to ask straight out, is that accusation true? I want to suggest that it is untrue. But like a lot of arguments that are bogus, it does contain a molecule of truth. I mean, often when I'm speaking to students um, at our college, for example, I say, when you, when you hear an argument that's fraudulent or dubious, always ask what is the grain of truth in it. It must have a grain of truth, because if it didn't, well, no one would believe it. So what is the grain of truth in this accusation against God or against Christianity? Well, the grain of truth is that the Islamic radicals do do what they do in the name of God. That's true. But there is nothing equivalent in any other religion. For example, I have been waiting with bated breath for the Buddhist suicide bombers to show up. 
No sign of those guys. There's nothing in Christianity, no Christian, you know, Bin Laden or Al-Qaeda or Hamas or Hezbollah, no Christian country run along the lines of post-Khomeini Iran. So what's going on here is that the atheist is making a kind of bogus equation between Islamic radicalism and every other religion, smearing, if you will, all the rest with what this subset of guys are doing. But, but let's go beyond the radical Muslims and ask the simple question, why are the Israelis fighting the Palestinians? Are they fighting about God? No. They are actually fighting about land. I was in a debate some time ago and someone said, wait a minute, there are lots of people on both sides who say God gave me this land and so on. There are some of those people. But the truth of it is the guys who founded the state of Israel did not do so as men on God's errand. In fact, the Orthodox Jews opposed Israel. It was the secular Jews, most of whom were, were Zionists, which is to say secular socialists, and they said that after, they said initially the Jews need a country, and then after the Holocaust, the Jews are no longer welcome in Europe. We, we better go back to where we came from and take our old land back. God had very little to do with it in their mind. Why are the Hindus fighting the Muslims? Are they fighting about God? Actually, they're fighting about Kashmir. And similarly, in Northern Ireland, they're not fighting about the Eucharist or transubstantiation, some fine point of theology, no. They're fighting about which bunch of guys gets to rule that country. So ethnic self-determination and not God is driving that conflict. By the way, there's a story about a guy who's walking in the street of Belfast, and a man jumps behind him and puts a gun in his head and says, Catholic or Protestant? And the man is, well, he's kind of nervous, and he goes, um, actually, I'm an atheist. And the voice behind him says, um, Catholic atheist or Protestant atheist? <laughs> now, here's what I'm driving at. You know, historically, there have been offenses and crimes done in the name of Christianity. I'll grant that. But when you look at them and you study them, you realize that they are infinitesimally inconsequential compared to the vastly greater, and indeed more recent, crimes of atheist regimes, which are often never focused on. So, the Inquisition. If you were to ask Eric Metaxas or me after we graduated from college, uh, how many people were killed in the Inquisition? I mean, I know I would have said, well, I don't know exactly, but it was a big blot on Western history. I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. The Spanish Inquisition we know lasted for 350 years. The truth of it is there's a big body of scholarship on all this, and if you look at it, you discover that the number of people killed in the Spanish Inquisition, which was the worst, over almost four centuries, was approximately 2,000. 2,000 people, 400 years. It works out to about five guys a year. I mean, not normally considered a world historical crime. The Salem Witch Trials. My wife and I were in Salem a few years ago. Hey, I do want to report that the witches today are doing really well. A lot of them are like tourist guides, you know. So you take one of their brochures, you know, number of people killed in the Salem witch trials. I'll tell you right there. Nineteen. Nineteen. Now, is it nineteen too many? Yeah. 
or 2019 if you want to add it up. But look, while the atheists are crying these major inconsolable crocodile tears over the crimes of Christianity, which are 200 or 500 or, in the case of the Crusades, a thousand years ago, they ignore the much more serious, much more recent and contemporary, still going on, crimes of atheism, of atheist regimes and governments. People say to me, well, Dinesh, are we talking about like Mao in China or Stalin in Russia or maybe the Nazi regime in Germany? And I say, hey, that is the tip of the iceberg. It's true that if you add up those three regimes in a pretty short space of time, about 60 years, six decades, those three regimes managed to kill pretty close to 100 million people. But that's only the beginning of it. What about the whole procession of Soviet dictators, beginning with Lenin and continuing with Andropov, Brezhnev, Chernenko? What about Fidel Castro, Kim Jong-il, Ceausescu, Enver Hocha? What about Pol Pot? Take a guy, take a guy like Pol Pot. His Khmer Rouge regime after the Vietnam War in the space of about three years, managed to kill two million people. Two million. I mean, even Bin Laden, in his wildest dreams, doesn't even come close. So, the point I'm trying to make is atheism has produced an ocean of blood, a mountain of bodies. But who should parachute into the discussion at this critical moment but Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, who says, wait a minute, we have to make a critical distinction. The Christians killed in the name of Christianity. You know, you might have had some tyrants who happened to be atheists, but hey, they didn't kill in the name of atheism. Now, the thing about Dawkins is he's a respected biologist. And here I think you begin to see the problem when a biologist is allowed to leave the laboratory. <laughs> Why? Because evidently the poor guy doesn't know any history. I mean, all you have to do is crack open the collected works of Karl Marx. You can see right away that the atheism is not incidental. I mean, Marx describes very famously religion as the opium, the opiate of the masses. What does that mean? Religion is a drug. It numbs you to social injustice. You cannot make social progress while it's still there. You've got to get rid of it. Why? That's how you create the new man and the new utopia liberated from the shackles of traditional religion and traditional morality. So the atheism is not peripheral, it's absolutely central to the whole scheme, which is why every Marxist and communist government began its operations by targeting the churches. So my conclusion is really very simple, and I think no more than a statement of historical fact. It is atheism, not religion, that is responsible for the mass murders of history. And this leads me to my uh, concluding thought before we open the door to questions and discussion. And that's this. How do we, in thinking about all this, how should we respond to these big questions? How should we address them? If we're Christians, how do we deal with this world? I think this is why today there is a real need for apologetics. What's apologetics? It's not apology from the Greek term simply meaning to give a reason, to be able to defend your faith. Christianity since the 60s in America has been largely experiential Christianity. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. 
And that's good. That's very important. Testimonial Christianity. But it does have some limits. Because why? Because experience is personal. Experience happened to you. You say, let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. And the atheist Christopher Hitchens will say, well, he's done nothing for me. So the experience may not be communicable to somebody else. Not theirs. It's yours. It's subjective. The advantage of apologetics is it moves into objective territory. And this is, uh, this is something that's been really neglected in the churches. Now, in the 20th century, the great apologist was C.S. Lewis. But remember that Lewis was writing in response to big questions that came out of World War II. Why would a just God allow the Holocaust? And Lewis wrote The Problem of Pain. But today the world is different, and the questions that are raised are different. And so it's really important for us as Christians to understand not just what we believe, but why we believe it. Eric mentioned that I am now the president. I've been, this is my first year, uh, of the King's College in New York City. As I was debating the leading atheists around the country, it occurred to me that this is a pretty formidable group. And they all work together. They are, you might say, a kind of A-team. And it's, a, it's an impressive team. It's got physicists, astronomers, brain scientists, historians, biologists, biblical scholars. Uh, an impressive roster. But then you say to yourself, that's the atheist A-team. So where's the Christian A-team? Turns out, we don't have one. Actually, we don't even have a B-team. Our guys are kind of scattered all over the place. One guy's in a particle physicist over here, another guy's in a seminary over there. So one of the reasons I wanted to go to New York is I thought, look, here is New York, and we have a college. And in some ways, it's a college with, a, with what to me is a really interesting mission, which is a Christian college, but in the middle of the secular city. So not a Christian college that's in the middle of nowhere. Not a Christian college that's a shelter from society. A Christian college that's not going to hide you from the mainstream institutions of culture, but it's going to equip you to be a powerful, transforming influence in that society. So I said, I love this mission. And when I think about it, it's in fact the original mission of the colleges that Eric and I went to. In other words, it's the original mission of seven out of the eight Ivy League colleges, which was started as Christian institutions. Dartmouth was founded, Eric, I hate to admit it, by a Yale man, a congregational minister from Yale who went into the woods of New Hampshire, and he said, I want to, I feel called by God to educate and Christianize the Indians. I sometimes wonder how I got there. I I think I might have misread the catalog, uh, but but it occurred to me that if you have a college in New York City, which is the publishing capital of the world and the media capital of the world and the business capital of the world, that here would be an opportunity to have a college that's more than a college, that's also a platform for advancing intellectual Christianity in the public square. We see nothing like that right now. Um, and so it's, for me, a real thrill to do that at King's. But let me just say more broadly that you know, we are called in Scripture to, to contend for our faith. But that's a very different challenge now than it would have been in the past. In the past, if somebody asked you, how do you know Jesus is the Son of God? He would say, well, it says right here in the book of Matthew, or it says right here in the Gospel of Luke. And that worked. Why? 
Because everybody kind of accepted the authority of the Bible to decide the matter. Today, in secular culture, that doesn't work so well. Because someone's going to say, I don't care what the Gospel of Luke says. I don't, I don't agree that the Bible gets to adjudicate the issue. And then as a Christian, we're tongue-tied because kind of that was our argument. So I think that there is a wonderful opportunity in today's world for us as Christians, the way to fulfill that biblical mandate is to learn to be a little bit, I sometimes call it bilingual. Bilingual, what I mean by that is we speak the Christian language in church here, but we also learn a secular language so we can communicate our beliefs even to people who don't share them. We become effective in secular culture. And for young people, if you get trained to do that, you become what I would call a very dangerous Christian. Why? Because suddenly you are now a force to be reckoned with. You can engage secularism on its own terms, using its own language of reason, the Socratic language. And this allows you to become a very powerful ambassador for God's kingdom. It says us in the book of Peter, we should be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. I think that today we are in a unique position to do that. We can see the new atheism also as a kind of opportunity, an opportunity for us to confidently go out in the public square and affirm the principles of Christianity, be, if you will, ambassadors for Christ in a world that desperately needs it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jeanette. Okay. Thank you, uh, Dinesh D'Souza. Aren't you glad Oz Guinness couldn't make it? Come on. That's uh, I really that was a joke. Don't don't applaud that. He's a friend of mine. He could be here. Uh, no, we're we're very grateful to um, to have you, Dinesh. As is our habit, our tradition at Socrates in the City, we now uh, get to ask questions of the speaker. Uh, we prefer true or false questions. I'm, so, I'm sorry about that. It's a time issue. Uh, no, actually, people have been like tweeting or texting their messages. Thank you, Todd. Now, what am I supposed to do with all these in five minutes? What am I going to do? Um, so I'm going to ask some of these, Dinesh. And if you don't like it, just ignore it, and I'll go to the next one, okay? It's like a lightning round, okay? Um, so <laughs> let's see. Um, these are almost legible. Thank you. Uh, that, wow, these are, these are unbelievable questions. Um, what about the new atheists' claim that God does not show himself through miracles? Any thoughts on that? Question of miracles, and I think for us as Christians it seems a little puzzling that miracles, which evidently occurred routinely in, the, in biblical times, um, don't seem so evident today. Or if they do, they don't seem evident in a public or verifiable way. Um, and um, raising the question of what is a miracle for? What is the point of a miracle? Sometimes when I um, uh, appear in these secular settings, people will say things like, you know, Jesus cured the blind man. Why didn't he cure blindness? Why didn't he cure all blind men?
And then to answer that question, you have to look a little more closely at why did Jesus cure the blind man? And it seems to me that, that when you look at miracles, um, without exception, uh, miracles have, you might say, spiritual motives. Um, the, Jesus wants the blind man to see, but he wants the blind man to see in more than the sense of being able to see. Ultimately, he wants the blind man to see the truth and follow him. So the miracle is ultimately a miracle of the heart, but the outward miracle is, you might say, just a sign of that. Um, in my book, What's So Great About Christianity, uh, I um, engage an argument that's made by the skeptical philosopher David Hume, who says that we should never believe in miracles, uh, essentially because they contradict experience, because they contradict scientific laws. And his point is that a law holds true by universal experience, and therefore miracles, in a sense, become, as a practical matter, impossible. But what's really interesting is that since Hume wrote, there's been a lot of attention to this question of scientific laws. And ironically, in Hume itself, there is a refutation of Hume's own argument, and I want to very briefly say what that is. What is a scientific law? Here's, here's, here's a law of science. In fact, maybe one of the most famous laws of science. Light travels at a known speed, uh, 186,000 miles a second in a vacuum. That's called speed C. Now, here's an interesting question. That's a scientific law, but how do we know that? How do we know that light travels at that speed? Well, we measure it. Let's say you have a light stick or a light meter, and you can measure the speed of light. One time, two times, five times, a hundred times. I would argue, and Hume agrees with me, by the way, that no amount of measurements of the speed of light, even if you measure it a million times, do you actually know, can you actually formulate a law that tells you that light always and everywhere travels at that speed? Why? Because it doesn't matter how often you measure it, how do you know that on a star five, five light years away, light travels at speed C? How do you know that a million years after the Big Bang, 13 billion years ago, light traveled at speed C? We weren't there. We didn't measure it. How can we possibly know what speed light traveled at then? The truth of it is, we don't know. We assume it. So, the point I'm trying to make here, and it, the, its relevance to miracles becomes clear in a, in a moment, scientific laws are just generalizations based upon what we know in the past. The, really, the most famous example of this is that for many centuries in Western civilization, there was a law reflected in countless poems and it's called, all swans are white. Why? Because every swan seen in the West for thousands of years, millions and millions of examples, and they're all white, leading to a law similar to measuring the speed of light, all swans are white. But then a couple of hundred years ago, the white man set foot on the shores of Australia and observed for the first time black swans. And how many black swans does it take to overturn this law? Just one. Suddenly, that law, which had millions of observations to confirm it, turned out not to be a law at all, but merely a statement of past experience. So, the bottom line. Miracles, they're not as freaky as they appear. They're freaky to us because we can't do them. 
But if God is all-powerful and the author of the laws, God would be in the position of, say, Shakespeare, producing a plot, say, Hamlet. God is in a complete position to perform miracles, which is to say to alter the laws of his own creation. The laws are the product of the creator, and he would not be in any sense dependent on them. So, miracles are possible. I'm not making the case for this or that miracle, but I think that today, as in the past, there's nothing unscientific in us believing in miracles. Thank you. Uh, The next question is sort of a philosophical question, and the question is this. If a woodchuck could chuck wood... All right, I won't ask that one. Um, here's another one. Um, how do atheists define morality? And th- this is, uh, I should mention, uh, we had our first ever Socrates in the City debate in New York City with Dinesh D'Souza and Peter uh, Singer of Princeton. Fascinating, fascinating debate. You can see bits of it online. You can order DVDs uh, of it. But that was the big question. Is God the source of morality, and that was one of the main questions at that debate, which somebody here is asking now. Um, if someone is an atheist, how does that atheist define morality? Speak about that, if you would, uh, Dinesh. Well, atheists fall into different camps, by the way. Atheists are not a single group. In fact, I would say that there are two kinds of atheists. In my experience, you have one group, I'll call them the scientific atheists. They say that we believe based on evidence that there is no God. But there's a second group, and it might be a bigger group. And these guys are not atheists. I would call them wounded theists. And these are people, it's not they don't believe in God. They hate him. They have a big bone to pick with God. And their atheism is a form of revenge against him. So when you're debating someone or persuading them, talking to them, it's always important to have a kind of diagnosis of where they're really coming from. Um, Morality. You've got a whole bunch of groups. One big group is called the relativists. The relativists. What do they say? Morality is subjective. There's no such thing as morality. Something may be true for me or right or wrong for you. Another good term for these relativists is liars. And what do I mean by that? None of them are really being honest, even with themselves. And I have a way to prove it. If you encounter a relativist, by the way, what I'm about to say is a, is a pure academic experiment and should be performed purely for research purposes. So if you're talking to a relativist who is really serious about being a relativist, you should perform the following operation without warning slap them hard across the face. Bam! And then wait. If you want, take out a notebook uh, to make observations. Now, if the person says nothing, do it again. Well, pretty soon you get the following reaction. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. Wow. That is a very philosophical statement. You shouldn't have done that. What does that mean? What it really means, the atheist doesn't just say, that hurt, or it didn't feel that good for me, but if it felt good for you, keep going. (laughs) You know, you shouldn't have done that means, hey, what you did was wrong. There's a shared standard of morality that I expect you to endorse that's common between us. 
In other words, that's the end of relativism right there. You discover that the relativist is a tactical relativist. He's relativist about your morals, so he can be absolutist about his own. So relativism, it's not real. Now, there is a more sophisticated group of atheists, um, and I won't say a lot about this, but for them, morality is an extended form of Darwinian selfishness. In other words, there really isn't morality. Morality is kind of long-term self-interest. So that uh, if you do something good, okay, a mom jumps into a burning car to save her three children. What a noble woman. The atheist says, not so. She is a Darwinian creature attempting to protect her genes. I don't mean her Levi's. I mean her genetic heritage. She knows that her children each have one half of her genes. And by the way, since there are three of them, there's more of her genes in the three kids than there is even in her. So by risking her life, it's a kind of cunning Machiavellian strategy, even if she's not aware of it, to perpetuate her genes through her children. This may sound a little bit like we're on one of Eric's kind of comedy routines here, but, but no, this is, a, this is a serious argument about what Richard Dawkins calls the selfish gene. So I'll leave it at that, but these are some atheist attempts to account for morality without positing a transcendent basis for it. Okay. Uh, we know you debarted, uh, debated Bart Ehrman, or did you debate Ehrman? Uh, you debated Bart Ehrman, and the question is, what is your opinion of Bart Ehrman's criticism of the reliability of the New Testament? Uh, any thoughts there? The thing about Bart Ehrman, we've done two, maybe three debates now, and um, the debates are focused on God and suffering, so they have not been about his biblical criticism um, so I, I won't address that directly. It's not my area of expertise. But I do want to say something about Bart that I think you'll find interesting. Bart started out as a Christian. In fact, he started out as an evangelical and even a fundamentalist. He went to Moody. Uh, he went to Wheaton uh, College in Illinois. And then he says he went to Princeton Theological Seminary where he realized that all the earlier stuff he had learned was wrong. Now, what happened to Bart? Well, Bart says, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary. I was equipped with C.S. Lewis's argument, which is, by the way, also the basis of Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, that says that Jesus must have been the Son of God because he was either the Son of God or a liar or a lunatic. So this, this argument is called liar, lunatic, or Lord. You can't say Jesus was a nice man, a great teacher, because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. So you've got to take him seriously. He might have been lying. He might have been nuts. But if he wasn't those two things, which is pretty clear he wasn't, well, he must have been whom he said he was. That's the argument. So Bart took this argument to Princeton Theological Seminary, and he said all his professors put their arms around him, and they go, Bart, nice try, but none of the above. And Bart's like, what? And they told him, well, Bart, the biblical manuscripts that we have are hundreds of years old. They were produced in the 3rd and the 4th century. Uh, they're a long ways off from those original events. We don't even know if Jesus said any of those things. So forget about liar, lunatic, Lord, none of the above. We have to question the source of the legitimacy of these documents. Here's where I'm going with all this. I think it is really important for us as Christians not to do 10th grade apologetics. Because 10th grade apologetics makes you even more vulnerable to attacks by sophisticated atheists who can undermine it. 
So what happened to Bart was he started out one way and then he became a Bible debunker. He's also a very effective strategist for atheism. In fact, when we debated a few months ago in Massachusetts, he goes, Dinesh, I'm writing a book on Christian forgery. And I knew what he was getting at. In the early centuries, the second, third, fourth century, Christians would often write under the name of the apostles. They would try to place themselves in the apostolic tradition. So they'd write an essay and they'd sign it Peter. No one called him on it because everyone knows Peter didn't have a last name. It's kind of easy just to go by Peter. So they would link themselves to the apostolic tradition. So, But see, today, that sounds bad. It sounds like these guys were frauds or plagiarists or pretending to be something they're not. And so Bart goes, I'm going to publish the scholarly book in the fall, but the popular book in the spring. And I realized right away he wants to influence his academic colleagues, but he also wants to be on the Piers Morgan show. In other words, he is looking at every possible avenue to advance his Bible debunking. And I was thinking to myself, wow, I wish more Christians thought that way. Not thought the way Bart does, but thought about how do we get our ideas out there in the widest possible format. I'm a little bit of a newcomer to this debate, and I've only been a Christian apologist, so-called, since 2007, when I wrote my book on Christianity. And people say, well, you know, we've got all these apologists out there. And I say, yeah, but the problem is, mostly, they're in the Christian subculture. Very few of these Christian apologists you will see in USA Today or on CNN. Uh, Their reach is at the youth conference, the pastor's conference. Their secular impact is almost zero. And I feel that there's a real need for us as Christians to enter the public debate and competitively engage with secular ideas. Because when we do that, it makes us stronger. And most of all, if we believe the truth is on our side, we know that we should be able to win. Okay, we have two... um... I totally disagree. Um, We have time. uh, One of the things about Socrates in the City, we always try to be punctual... Uh, because we want to respect people's time. Um, and so uh, we're ju- we just have time for two more quick uh, questions. Uh, the first one is, how have uh, the secular students on campuses, as, you, as you've done these debates, what, what has the response been uh, from, from uh, secular students? The, um, as I mentioned, I've done a, about two dozen, maybe more, of these debates. And uh, the interest in them is enormous. Uh, Hitchens and I did a debate at the University of Central Florida. It was sort of in the athletic arena, 7,000 people. Um, People came from churches, yeah, but also lots of students. Um, And so when I look into the audience in these debates, I find three groups of people. Um, The first group is the Christians. And in a way, if I say to myself, what am I trying to accomplish? I'm trying to motivate and inspire and embolden that group. Because a lot of times on the secular campus, the Christians feel a little beaten down. And then there's another group, the rival group, that's the atheists. But then the middle is the biggest group. I would call them the seekers. These are the guys who are a little jaded. Some of them are kind of against organized religion. Some would call themselves agnostics. And this is the group you're really trying to persuade, the group on the fence. The atheists, I have to confess, I'm really not trying to persuade those guys. Why? Because most of them are actually super arrogant. They don't even come to learn. Their questions are like this, Mr. D'Souza, has it occurred to you? And then they ask me a question I heard yesterday, you know. So, but 
their idea is to like embarrass you. That's their goal. And so with the atheists, I'm not really trying to persuade them. What am I trying to do? I'm basically trying to flummox and bewilder them. Um, because I'm hoping that by doing that, at least it will moderate their arrogance and they'll begin to recognize that they're not quite as Einsteinian as they thought they were. Uh, and they'll begin to reconsider a little bit. That's all I'm trying to accomplish there. So that's the, that's the scope okay. of views. Okay, and then final question, uh, get a little bit personal. Uh, describe briefly what led to your, I don't know if you would call it a conversion, but to, to, to the place where you are now intellectually with regard uh, to faith. How did, how did you get here? Hmm. Can you be more specific? I, um, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a bit new at this. I was in a church the other day and someone said, well, before you do your talk, you have to give your testimony. I was thinking, oh, no. Uh, because to me, you know, when someone gets up to give up their testimony, it's going to be very shocking. I used to be a drug addict. I used to do this. I used to do that. Uh, so I'm a little bit nervous about giving testimony. But anyway. Well, um, I, I, and specifically, I don't, I don't really mean testimony, but just your thinking or how you, how you come, uh, if you can speak to how you get to where you are. I think I was raised Catholic. I grew up in India. Um, my family was converted by missionaries, Portuguese missionaries, in a place called Goa in the south of India. Um, my uh, Catholicism got battered in college. Um, in fact, what happened to me is what the new atheists want to happen to everyone, uh, which is to say they want to make you embarrassed about your faith. They want to put a wedge between your mind and your heart. And so I kind of fell away. I think when I look back on my career, I, I flung myself into political conservatism because it seemed to me to have a more solid ground uh, than the Christianity that I didn't know how to defend I later realized that this Christianity I couldn't defend, not because it's indefensible, but because it was what could be called crayon Christianity. We all learn our Christianity in a very simplified way, especially if we learn it when we're five or six years old. Uh, and we often don't outgrow that. That's the Christianity I brought to America. So it was only in adult life when we moved from Washington, D.C., which is where I made, began my career, to California, my wife, my wife's evangelical Christian. She's from the South. I think Eric mentioned her name is Dixie. Um, in New York, by the way, that is not considered a real name. That's, that's seen as a stage name or something like that. <laughs> so, anyway. But we began to go to a Calvary Chapel church in California. And that's when I, I actually began to experience an evangelical Christianity that I was very powerful um, that had a relevance to everyday life. It wasn't just a kind of uh, social or routinized uh, church going. So I began to take more seriously um, Christianity. I found my own faith deepening. And then one day I turn on the TV and I see Christopher Hitchens, whom I, whom I knew from Washington, uh, debating a pastor and, um, and making the pastor look really bad. Um, be because the pastor was not accustomed to taking on a spear chucker like this guy. Um, and then I suddenly got the idea that, you know what, it would be really cool. I said, I wonder if I could step into this arena. It'll bring my faith and my work. My work was totally secular. Bring it closer together. And so that was, to me, a wonderful opportunity to um, uh, um, move my career more in the direction in which I could be a public defender of, of the faith. And so it's 
for me, been a great privilege to do that. Well, I think we're all very grateful uh, that you took that uh, journey. And so another round of applause for our first Socrates speaker in Dallas, Dinesh D'Souza. Thank you, Dinesh. Really uh, tremendous. Thank you so much. Um, just a couple of uh, uh, quick points before we uh, dismiss here. I want to thank you again for being uh, part of the first uh, ever in Texas Socrates in the City audience. Normally, as I think I said in the beginning, when we've had Socrates events um, uh, in New York City and twice now in Chicago, they're not normally uh, in a venue like this. They're much more uh, intimate, but I guess this is Texas, so we had to go big for the first time. But they're more, a little bit more intimate, uh, and you know, we've got a little reception beforehand and a reception afterward. There's piano music, people in tuxedos. Uh, Dick Cavett shows up. Uh, that's actually true. That's, he's shown up four times. Uh, they're, they're pretty wonderful events. And in fact, our next event, just to give you a sense of what we do, um, it's, it's not always Christian apologetics. We like to go in all kinds of uh, directions. And next time, uh, June 23rd in New York City, if anybody's going to be in New York City, uh, my special guest for Socrates in the City will be Mr. Dick Cavett. I'm going to be uh, asking him uh, questions about celebrity, fame, and other really small topics. But I think uh, he, I saw him actually uh, on CNN recently talking after the death of uh, Elizabeth Taylor, and I was amazed at what he said, because I think of Dick Cavett as somebody who has always worshipped celebrity, and he said that we shouldn't envy these people. And even though uh, Dick uh, is an agnostic, I was really interested in his perspective, because he's been able to watch uh, celebrities, and he said, don't envy these people. He talked about Richard Burton. He said, here, here was a guy, one of the most talented people in the world. Everybody wants to be Richard Burton, but he died of alcoholism in his 50s. Uh, and he went on and on. It was very interesting. He's had some real perspective. So our next event at Socrates in the City in New York City, strangely enough, I'll be interviewing Dick Cavett, uh, talking a little bit more about those kinds of things. Uh, we've got N.T. Wright uh, in July, on July 11th. We've got Baroness Cox coming uh, in the fall, Dallas Willard coming uh, in the spring, all kinds of tremendous uh, speakers. So um, we want to stay in touch with you. Now, here's the thing. We haven't asked you for your emails or anything, but uh, a couple of ways you can stay in touch. First of all, you can uh, find us on Facebook. We have a Socrates in the City Facebook site. I want to recommend that to you. I also want to say if you would write down uh, your email address or your name and email address and leave it at the book table or if you've got a business card or something like that, we will put you uh, in the Dallas database. We will not bother you often, I promise, but when we're having an event in Dallas, we'll get that news uh, out to you. We'd really love to do that because I'm just very excited about doing more of these uh, events uh, in this area. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter. I'd love it if you follow me. If you follow me on Facebook or Twitter, I announce all the Socrates stuff uh, on my personal Facebook page as well. But we would love uh, to stay in touch with you. Uh, in the fall, uh, we are coming out with our first ever Socrates in the City book. I am very excited about this. We've had 50 or 60 tremendous uh, events in New York over the last decade, and we've picked a 10 of the best or the most, I would say, typical kind of Socrates evenings. We've got the transcripts uh, and my opening uh, comments, and we put that together in a book. I have to say, when I looked over this recently, I, I realized that we really had something, that over the course of 10 years, uh, we have had so many talks, just like the one that Dinesh gave, and, and, and many different ones, and I thought, this is a treasure. So I'm very excited that that's coming out as a book. Maybe I'll come back uh, uh, in the fall um, 
and I can talk about that, or I can talk about Bonhoeffer or something like that, but I would love to, uh, to share that book with you all. Um, I think that's it. We're now going to go and uh, sign books. And uh, Todd, and let me say thank you, Todd Wagner. Thank you, Watermark, for hosting Sockfies in the City. This is a dream come true. Thank you. I, I want to I let you guys know this. You know, uh, there's a verse in the Scripture. We even talked about Scripture all night. I just want to say this. You know, one of my life verses is 1 Peter 3.15, which is sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Ultimately, and before I finish that verse, the final apologetic, no matter how much you know, you could be a brilliant mind like Dinesh. And yet if you live a life that is inconsistent with the life of Christ, your intellectual positions will be completely invalidated by the practicality of your living. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, one of the original men who stepped in the public square, said the final apologetic is love. And so while we must excel still more, and I agree with everything Dinesh said about being able to engage in the public square, uh, I agree with what Peter says. The first thing you do is you live a life that suggests that there is divinity associated with it. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then it says, always be prepared to make a defense when anyone asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. And do that with gentleness and reverence, or gentleness and respect in a different translation. And so you must learn to do it in a way that is winsome, in a way that is truthful, in a way that is accurate, in a way that speaks both within the biblical text and as Dinesh modeled so beautifully tonight, outside the biblical text. That means you must apply diligence to your life. Okay, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. If you wonder why Eric has written the best book that any believer could get their arms on so that you could be prepared for the coming test, it wasn't because he wished he could write a book. It was because he applied diligence to that task, and we were given the gift of Bonhoeffer. If you want to know how Dinesh is able to talk to Peter Singer and um, Christopher Hitchens and others, it wasn't because he just thought it would be a good idea. It was because he applied himself to the task of learning. We want you to know that this is something, hopefully, that will engage you with the topic of truth. And if you're a guest that's here tonight, I want you to know we, we love to laugh, we love to enjoy life, but we love to engage you in a way that uh, will lead to the greatest joy you could ever know, which we believe is to know Jesus Christ. And we're glad that you're here with us this evening. We're glad that you enjoyed Socrates in the City. I pray you get to know my friends Eric and Dinesh through their great materials that are out there. Thank you for coming and sharing your evening with us. Have a great night. We'll see you.